Well, we find ourselves in the book of James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20 while you turn there on your electronic devices or Bibles. want to highlight a couple of things that we have going on here at church. Here at Chesapeake, you guys have the student ministries poolside Bible study. Uh, that sounds fun. You get to be cool and be fed the word of God at the same time. Also, a men, we have a men's rally that's going to be taking place next Saturday at Yorktown. It's one of our uh, global events that we do for men, and our goal is to try to get men on the fringes connected. Please pre-register if you plan to attend. We encourage you to take a group. I know it's a bit of a drive down to Yorktown, but if you can bring a few men out there that you want to get connected or you're mentoring or disciple breakfast and competition and other things, you can register at uh, gocoastal slash forward slash events.org. And then finally, the backpacks for our backpack drive today is the last day for our backpacks. And so uh, those are the announcements this morning. And so we're, again, we're looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. The title of this morning's message is the prayer of faith. Would you pray with me one more time? Uh, Father, I am grateful to have the opportunity to stand before your people, to open up the scriptures and worship you through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. I pray that you would minister to us beyond my preparation, education, and knowledge, Lord, that you would remove distractions and that you would open up our eyes, that we might see wonderful things from your word. I pray in the name of Jesus that your son might be exalted in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we're coming to the end of this great epistle, the epistle of James. And by way of reminder, I want to remind you that James assumes certain things. He assumes that the audience that he is writing to are Believers. That's why when you read the book of James, you have really hard-hitting truths. And also, one of the things that I want to remind you of is that the book of James is primarily practical and not theological. Whereas when you read the Apostle Paul's writings, you read a lot of theology with his practicality. James, even though does have some theology, is primarily practical, and that's why many scholars have called the book of James the book of Proverbs of the New Testament. And so here as he closes his letter to, this, to the believers that are dispersed, he writes to us about prayer. And these verses James writes to us about prayer, more specifically about the prayer of faith. What is the prayer of faith? The prayer of faith is fully convinced that God will hear and answer. Uh, John Calvin once wrote, whosoever then really seeks to be heard must be fully persuaded that he does not pray in vain. End quote. Another commentary writer noted this. The prayer of faith is the prayer which expresses trust in God and flows out of a commitment to him only such prayers are effective. It's worth mentioning that in these eight verses alone, the words prayer or pray are mentioned seven times. There seems to be an overarching theme 
of prayer in these verses. And so what I'd like to do this morning for us to do is to look at the different ways that prayer impacts us as a community of believer. More specifically, we will see the role that prayer plays through our suffering versus 13 and 14. We will look at the connection between prayer and dealing with our sin, verses 15 and 16. And then we will see the importance of prayer in our sickness, verses 14 and 16. We will also look at the power that comes from praying steadily, verses 17 and 18. And finally, we will see that a prayerful heart will care about the salvation of others. The word prayer, pray, appears first in verse 13 where we read, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praises. When we are suffering, we are instructed to pray, which brings us to point number one. We are to pray through our suffering. One of the difficult truths we have to accept as believers is suffering. As Christians, we are not exempt from suffering. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things that in me you might have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. But trust in me, I have overcome the world. James seems to affirm that when he says, if anyone is suffering, let him pray, which brings us to letter A. Prayer is the key to navigating suffering. Suffering is hard. Suffering is unpleasant. Suffering is inconvenient. Suffering, if we're honest, is unwanted, but a necessary part of our journey as believers. There will be times when suffering in our lives will be the will of God. In fact, 1 Peter 4.19 records these words, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in doing well as unto a faithful creator. And we do this through prayer. Prayer is the medicine for suffering. Prayer helps us focus on God through our suffering. Now, I am not saying that prayer cures or takes away our suffering, even though God can but what I am saying that prayer helps us look at things through God's perspective. When we suffer, we must also understand that God is giving us our suffering as an entrustment. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 records some very interesting words. It says like this, it says, for unto you it has been given. Now, when I hear the word, for unto you it has been giving, the next thing that I expect you to say is a million dollars. Yes, Lord. For unto you it has been given this scholarship. For unto you it has been given this brand new house. 
But what Paul writes to the church in Philippi says, for unto you it has been given not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul treats suffering as though it were some type of gift or some type of entrusted. And we are to purpose to honor God and glorify God through our sufferings. And this helps us better understand why James says, if anyone is suffering, let him pray. It's also helpful to understand that there is a level of closeness we experience with Christ when we walk through our suffering. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Suffering provides for us an opportunity to fellowship with Christ as we walk through our sufferings. That's why Paul calls it the fellowship, the quanania of his sufferings. Suffering has many dimensions. There is financial suffering. There is relational suffering. There is emotional suffering. Financial responsibilities, debt, insufficient income, the inability to provide adequately for our loved ones, and inflation. All these things can create such stress that it feels like suffering. Some folks are in such poverty that they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. This also can create a level of suffering. When parents can provide food or clothing, for their children, this causes a level of suffering. Suffering can also be relational. Uh, when you find yourself in a loveless marriage that lacks intimacy and communication and where there is stress, when families are dysfunctional and they are controlling individuals in the family and there's chaos and strife and there is unforgiveness and deception and neglect and division in our relationships, this also causes a level of relational suffering. Suffering can also bring about mental stress that can overwhelm our emotions. I think this is why David said in Psalm 62 verse 1, when my heart is overwhelmed, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David says, I become overwhelmed, but I know that God is the medicine for my unsettling emotions. For he is a very present help in the time of trouble. Therefore, I will lift my eyes to the hills where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Emotional suffering can tempt us to become overly anxious. This is why the Bible says in Philippians 4, 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And this is the part that I love. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your mind and your heart in Christ 
Jesus. So even though you are going through trials, even though you're going through tribulations, even though your emotions are unsettled, through prayer we have the ability to take it to God and God will give us peace which surpasses understanding. A peace that folks will look at you from the outside in and says, how is he still sane? How is she still sane? How are they able to manage? It is the peace of God which passes understanding, which comes when we choose prayer instead of anxiety. Prayer in our suffering will give us the proper perspective of life. Prayer in our suffering fills us with hope. Now, as we continue reading in there in verse 13, we also see the prayer, the role that prayer plays in dealing with our sin. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up and... If he had committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. It's interesting that he says, call for the elders of the church if someone is sick. The implication here in the text is that this person is sick to the point of being bedridden. Therefore, they have to call. Oh, can I digress for a moment? Uh, sometimes people get sick in church and they don't tell anyone and they're gone for three weeks and they say, nobody called me. Nobody noticed that I was gone. In a perfect world, we would know that you are sick, but it says call. If you are sick, call. We don't know if you are sick if you don't call. Call for the elders of the church. And then people get in their feelings, I was gone for three weeks and nobody came to visit me. Did you call? Call for the elders in the church. And so, yes, we should, people should notice if you're on, but we don't know if you're on vacation. We don't know if you're, we don't know. And so call. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. I'll get back to the text. Why call for the elders? What is the role of an elder? Well, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, the elder, elders are to shepherd the flock. They are to care for God's people. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the elder is a man who demonstrates a life of spiritual maturity, wisdom, and character. He would anoint the sick person with oil and pray over them. Let me say a little bit about the oil before I move any further. The, the oil was used by the disciples to cure sicknesses in Mark 6, 12, 13. In those days, oil would be applied for medicinal purposes. And in the Old Testament, oil was also used for ceremonial purposes to anoint kings and priests. The oil was a symbol of God's choosing. The oil was a symbol of God's appointment. And here the oil is used both medicinally and as a symbol of God's presence. The oil is a symbol which says, 
we are looking to God to do the healing. Now, why call for such a person? The elder is called because he is a spiritually mature person who will not only be concerned about the physical problem which causes the sickness, but he will also be concerned about the soul. The elder will not be afraid to ask the questions, hey, uh, how is your relationship with Christ? Is there anything that you are struggling with? Is there any unrepented sin in your life? And it will be dealt with through prayer. Here's an important point. I don't want you to miss it from the text. At the end of verse 15, it says, if he had committed any sins, they will be forgiven. And then verse 16 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Which brings us to point number two. The passage calls us to deal with our sins in prayer. Doing this requires a great deal of humility. According to this text, the sixth person would have to call for an elder or a person that is spiritually mature who would provide soul care. Then it says if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven, meaning there will be confession and repentance through prayer. I can't tell you how many times I have gone to do a hospital to pray for people who are in the hospital and are struggling. And I would ask them, well, how, how is your prayer life? How is your relationship with the Lord? And on many occasions, they'll be like, well, I'm struggling with unforgiveness. Well, let's deal with that. Or I'm struggling with unbelief. Well, let, let's pray about that. Or I have really, really been relaxing, not really seeking the Lord as I should. And we would pray for that. We would pray for healing, but we would take care of the spiritual needs as also we would take care of the physical needs. Now, we have to understand not all sickness comes from sin. Jesus was asked once when he was going to heal, when he healed the blind man, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, neither, but that the works of God may be displayed. And so we can't assume that any, every time someone is sick is be, or bedridden is because they have committed some sin. And yet there are, by, there are times in the Bible where the scriptures tell us that there are certain sins or certain sicknesses that come about from sinning. Jesus healed the paraplegic in the, at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And after he healed him, he said, go and sin no more lest something worse happens to you. And so this is why it's important when we are caring for people that we not only care for the physical needs and pray for healing, but that we care enough about people to care about their eternal soul. This is not only true when dealing with sickness, but it highlights for us a broader truth about our daily living. In other words, the same way mature person would be faithful to deal with any sin in the life of the bedridden sick person, we too have to deal with the sin in our own lives. Which brings us to letter A. We have to be purposeful with our sin. We are to intentionally kill the sin in our lives. Oh, I have to ask you today. Are you struggling with some type of in sin in your life? 
Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there some ungodly habit that the Lord has been dealing with you over the period of time that you need to let go of? Is there some area in your life of disobedience? Perhaps is your language. Perhaps it's undisciplined. Perhaps is someone whom you know you need to go and apologize to and restore that relationship. Is there some area where the Lord is prompting you to deal with in prayer? Now, I understand that we all struggle and there are certain habits and hang-ups that it takes us time to overcome. I, I, I certainly have hang-ups, Jerry. I like, I like to overindulge. I can tell you I cannot have ice cream in my house. I have no self-control. And I'm one of these people that after my meal, I go to the refrigerator and I open it and then I come back and I open it again and I come back. And Jiba asked me, what are you looking for? And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to eat something. My flesh tells me I need to put something in my mouth. And so I'm constantly asking the Lord to help me with this lasciviousness, to help me with this lack of restraint. And I know it's a sin in my life. Would you pray for me in this area? Because it bleeds into other areas of my life as well. But I know I'm constantly before the Lord. So I understand that there are habits and things that we have to work through. But yet we can overcome them. We can, as we focus on these things, overcome these things. Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he says, If you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the things of the flesh, you will live. It's God's will that we be sanctified. It's God's will that we live a holy life unto the Lord. And there are times when we need help from someone else, like an elder or a pastor or a small group leader, person that would help care for our souls and that they would care enough for us to challenge us in our walk and to pray for us and to encourage us. This is why verse 16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. This is a wonderful verse because it not only lets us know that God forgives, but also that he heals. Now, in the context of this verse, if there was a sin, it would be dealt with and forgiveness would be Given restoration and healing would flow. This brings us to point number three. We are called to pray through our sickness. Verse 15 says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. The idea in this passage is that James, that, is that the person is rescued from their disease of, or affliction. The prayer of faith would save the one who is sick, which brings us to letter A. God's healing comes through prayer. God is the source of all healing except for counterfeit miracles. Whether it comes through herbal medicine, whether it comes through the pharmaceutical companies, or doctors, or a supernatural healing from God, God is the healer. 
He is the Lord our God. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. He sent his word to heal us and deliver us from our destructions. God is the healer. And I wanted to get that in your spirit because God heals. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sometimes I think we resignate ourselves to being sick. Listen, God heals. The, sa- the word save in this passage is the Greek word so-so which is the same verb used in John 3.17 where it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be sozo or saved. And here's what I'd like to suggest. In the same way that prayer can save the sick, the prayer of faith can also lead us to salvation, the salvation of our souls when we repent of our sins and we believe the gospel. When we understand that we were born sinners and separated from the love of God. When we understand that we were by nature children of wrath and that we of our own selves can't meet the righteous requirements of God because God is perfect and we are holy and we are not. Therefore, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He was buried and placed in a tomb and rose bodily again from the dead on the third day to give you and I the hope of eternal life and to prove, in fact, that he was the Son of God. And now when we repent of our sins, when we believe the gospel, the fact that Jesus died as a substitute for our death and rose from the dead and we receive Christ, the Bible says we are saved. We are born again. The Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts through faith. Oh, I have to ask you, have you done that today? Have you received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? One of the things I do is baptism. And one of the questions I usually ask people, tell me a little bit about how and when you got saved. And nine times out of ten, I usually get this answer. Well, I've been in church all my life. My parents were Christians. Well, my great-granddaddy was a preacher. My granddaddy was a preacher. My daddy was a preacher. That's not what I asked you. It's wonderful that you have a Christian heritage. It's wonderful that you were raised in church. But have you been born again? Listen to me. God does not have any grandchildren. We all have to be born again. We all have to receive Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. We all have to trust Christ. Have you trusted Christ? Have you believed the gospel? Have you received him? Prayer plays a role in rescuing us from our sins, and prayer plays a role in rescuing us from our disease. Through the prayer of faith, we repent and trust Christ to save our souls. And through the prayer of faith, we confess our sins and seek God for physical healing. The verse says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. So we see that prayer and confession is connected to healing. 
Prayer plays an important part in healing. Now, there are some beautiful things about that happen as we confess our faults one to another. And these are not on your notes. I want to share them for you. I don't want you to miss them. Number one, when we confess our faults one to another, it fosters accountability. Number two, it fosters community. And number three, it encourages prayer, which brings us to point number four. We are to pray Steadily. Look at what it says in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. These two verses mention the prophet Elijah. And then he goes out of his way to mention that Elijah was a man who had weaknesses just like us. But he prayed steadily. He prayed consistently. He prayed earnestly and God heard him. This teaches us that to pray on a regular basis is important in the life of a believer. We are to endeavor to have a persistent prayer life. Why? Because the end of verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The King James Version translates this phrase, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The, the Greek word there is the word energio, from where we get our English word energy. And so it is important that we devote time and energy to prayer. However, the idea in this verse is that when we pray, our prayer is working. Our prayer is affecting, effective. And this brings us to letter A. Persistence makes prayer effective. It is important that we pray. We have, when we pray, we must have the right heart posture. Because when done with the right heart posture, it is effective. Like I said, the King James Version translates this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Oh, I have to ask you at this point, I know I ask a lot of rhetorical questions. Is your prayer life being effective? Are you praying consistently? Is your heart right in prayer? Many times we don't realize that our prayers are hindered because we don't have the right heart posture. When our heart is not right, we won't have a desire to pray. When our heart is not right, we won't have a drive to pray. When our heart is not right, we won't have a motivation or a zeal to pray. Our prayer lives would struggle. And if you are struggling in your prayer life, if you lack the motivation, if you lack the drive, if you lack the prioritization, you have to ask yourself, is my heart in the right place? Do I have the right heart posture? The cool thing about this is that all you have to do is pray. Like David said, create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit. And when prayer is done with the right heart posture, it will work. It will be 
effective. When our prayers are effective, we will be encouraged to pray more. And when we are encouraged to pray more, our prayer lives will catch fire and we will pray more frequently. And when we pray more frequently, we will have a consistent prayer life because we have the right heart posture and we have prioritized God. In verse 17, it teaches us that Elijah prayed fervently. Then it says, and he prayed Again, the idea here is, is that there is a focus on prayer. It speaks of having a place of prayer or an intentionality about prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus said, when you pray, go to your closet. When time, closet place. Now, I understand that in the busy culture that we have, many of us pray on the go, or many of us have our prayer time in the car. The idea here is that we make prayer intentional. It requires determination. It requires purpose. It requires passion and pursuit and priority. It requires that we believe that God answers prayer. Elijah went before Ahab, and he told him, Guess what, Ahab? It's not going to rain, nor dew is going to be upon the grass, unless I say so. This is what the Lord says. And it took faith to believe that that other part of that prayer was going to come three and a half years later. So he had not only invested time, he also had invested faith in God. He believed God would answer prayer. I want to pause here for a second because sometimes I think when we pray, we are more concerned about how we sound. We are more concerned about stringing the right phrases or the right sentences together. And certainly we don't want to be incoherent. But I think the focus needs to be on God and who he is and the fact that whether you close your eyes or whether you're staring into heaven or you're staring at a carpet in your room or you're staring at the road when you're praying of this immense being who created the universe, who loved you with an everlasting love that is waiting for you to ask him so that he can answer your prayers, that we be consciously aware of the fact that he hears us. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says this. It says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For those that come to him must believe that he is. And this is the part that I love about this verse. And that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We need to be serious-minded and committed to our prayer lives. As I mentioned before, it's okay to pray on the go. How else would we pray without ceasing? But I, I often tell people, it's like, listen, how would you like to be in a relationship with someone where you just text all the time? How would you like to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend where you never had face-to-face -face time or never went on dates? You only did occasional phone calls or occasional texts or emails while you were on the go. 
No, you said that relationship wouldn't work because there is no intentionality. There is no purpose. It's a maintenance relationship, as my wife and I like to call them. But when you are interested in someone, you're like, hey, I'd like to take you out to dinner. Can I take you for a cup of coffee? We want to have some face-to-face time, and we're going to make eye contact. And we're going to hold hands. And we're going to feel the goosebumps and the butterfly. Yes. Butterfly. Text all the time? There has to be a place and a time where you have intimacy. Oh, but don't we do the same thing with God? Text, email. Is there a meeting place where you meet with God? Is there a specific time where you meet with God? Or are you always doing the pray without ceasing, the on the go thing? That should just serve as the supplement to your prayer life. I call it supplement. It's like doing that is like living on vitamins. You have to do the intentional one-on-one time And then when you do the on the go, it's the icing on the cake. Your on the go prayer flows out of the overflow of your devotional time, your private time. And listen, all of us have the same 24-hour day. Martin Luther, the great reformer who tacked the thesis 95 to the door of the church in Utenberg said these words, I have an extremely busy day, therefore I need to pray an extra hour. Much different approach than we have to the relationship with God. Now, I am not praying legalism or praying that you be condemned, but I do pray that there is a sense in which it sparks your desire to want to know God, to want to spend time with him, to want to see him do marvelous things in your prayer life. Let's read the last couple of verses and then we'll close up. My beloved brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, bring back the sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In these verses, James speaks of a person who was formerly enjoying fellowship as part of the local body and has walked away from the faith and begin to live a life of sin away from the local church. Then this person is sought out by a brother or a sister in the Lord and restored back to fellowship. And here is how it connects to prayer. When we have a consistent prayer life, God will give us a heart to pray for other people. And when we start praying for other people, we will start doing for for other people. We will start doing life with other people. But all this comes from a heart that is submitted and committed to God in prayer. A consistent prayer life will cultivate us a heart of compassion for others. And the Holy Spirit will lead us to pray for others. This brings us to our final point, number 
five. We are, when we are consistent in prayer, we begin to pray savingly. We begin to care about the salvation of others. We begin to care about the plight of others. It's difficult to have a consistent prayer life without prayer for others. We will recognize that he is our father. Forgive us our trespasses. Those who trespass against us. The Holy Spirit will not only lead us to pray for others, but he will also lead us to do for others. Which brings us to our final point. Letter A. A heart of compassion flows from prayer. And what I'd like to do today as we close our time together is realize that what, when a community is prayerful, a community is powerful. A community that is affected and loving and gracious and furthers the kingdom of God it is a community that is prayerful. And today James spoke about the prayer of faith, and he talked about the healing of the sick, and he talked about saving others. And do, do you usually stand up when you do the last song here? So I want to ask you to stand to your feet. And here, here's what I like to do this morning as we crow, close in prayer and uh, the worship team comes. To, we're going to sing the, the last song. Perhaps you're here today, and you're struggling with some type of ailment. Or you have a family member that is struggling with some type of disease. I want to pray today that God would move sovereignly, however he wants to use in that situation, in that sickness, in that disease. And whether it's, and whether it's a bum knee like I, I have or whether it's diabetes or whether it's cancer, all things are equally easy for God. So I want to pray. Then I want to pray something else. If you're, if you're here today and you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to do that. Or if you have a loved one who is not saved, I want you to pray for that person today. I want you to get them in your mind, get them in your heart. As the prayer team comes to the front, you, you can come up and pray with someone or you can pray there uh, in your seat. It makes no, no difference. But I want to pray. So here's what I like to do. I'm, I'm going to be a little old school here. And so would you bow your heads with me? Would everybody bow your head? If, if you're trusting someone, God to do something or to, to heal you or a, or a family member or something, would you raise your hand right where you are? God bless you all over the place. If you're going to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior today, would you raise your hand? God bless you. God bless you. If you're trusting God to save a family member, would you raise your hand as well? God bless your hands all over the place. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to worship. And our worship team is going to come. And if you trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, come and tell one of the people that are praying here so that we can encourage you and give you some resources to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Father, I come to you because your word teaches us, Father, that we have not because we ask not. And that, Father, we have not because we ask amiss to consume within our own desires. Lord, here we are praying because your word says, Lord God, 
that you are the Lord, our healer. Lord, you see the hands of the people that went up, Lord, how they themselves or they have family members who are struggling with sickness. I ask you, Lord, to heal us in the name of Jesus. You said that healing is the bread of your children. So I pray to heal your people as you did in the days of Hezekiah. Heal your people. Heal our family members. Heal our families. Heal our hearts, Lord. And finally, Lord, for those who are trusting you as their Savior today. I pray that there, Lord God, as they repent of their sins, as they believe Christ, as they receive you, that you would cause them to be alive, to be regenerated, to be born again. And in Jesus' name, Lord, we lift up those who are family members of our, who are strayed from the truth or who do not know you or who are actively living in sin. And we ask you, give them the gift of repentance. Let your goodness lead them to repentance. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of things before I go. If you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, would you come down here and talk to one of our leaders, our prayer leaders? We'd love to encourage you and give you resources. If God does something miraculous in you or in a family member, would you share it with the staff here at the church so that we are encouraged in our prayers as well and be abreast of the things that God is doing amongst your people. God bless you. Thank you.